Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, if you got a Bible, turn with me to that passage that Chuchu just read, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. Uh, something you should know about me is that I absolutely love stand-up comedy. So a lot of TV, a lot of people have TV shows that they like to watch over and over again, Parks and Rec, The Office, all the greats, right? Uh, I have stand-up comedy specials that I like to watch over and over again. And some people, when they know that about me, will say, well, wait, don't, don't the jokes get old once you already know the punchline? Like, how can you watch stand-up over and over again? And the answer, at least for me, is no. They don't even get a little bit old after I know the punchline. Um, in fact, sometimes I think when it's really good stand-up, uh, the jokes get better each and every time you watch. And part of that, I think, is that I actually enjoy the craft of stand-up comedy. I think comedy at its best can actually do way more than just make people laugh. I actually think it can accomplish something that can't really be accomplished most any other way. I think it can actually challenge people's assumptions about the world. Sometimes, I think if you can get people laughing, you can also get them thinking critically. So think of comedians today like a Bo Burnham or Sasha Baron Cohen or Dave Chappelle. People like John Stewart or John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, or even back in the day, comedians like George Carlin and Richard Pryor, people like that. In no way am I trying to endorse everything that those comedians say, far from it. But I do think they possess a skill that is increasingly rare in our day and age. Comedians like that don't just entertain us, I think they also make us think. They make us laugh, but they also poke and prod at our sensibilities. They, they provoke people to thought. They, they bring up cultural hot topics sometimes that in any other setting would have people up in arms, would have people at each other's throats. But in the context of their comedy, they use humor to lower people's defenses a little and at least occasionally challenge them to think differently about the world around them. I have this theory, which I'm pretty sure I stole from somebody else, that comedians are one of the last public examples we have of what we might call prophetic speech. And I don't mean prophetic as in they tell the future, although that would be exciting if you were listening to a stand-up comic and they could help you tell the future. Uh, I just mean that they can offer incisive, piercing truth into culture at large. They, they cut through the noise and the inconsistencies in the way that we think, and sometimes they can even make us laugh at the inconsistencies in the way that we think. Comedy is one of the last settings remaining where we will actually sit captive and let the person on stage take aim at us a little bit. 
And because of that, it is no surprise at all that these types of comedians do occasionally find themselves in hot water with the general public, right? So Dave Chappelle has triggered protests with his stand-up. Sasha Baron Cohen is regularly sued over his comedy and documentaries. George Carlin, back in the day, was notorious for offending pretty much every socio-political group that there was. Prophetic, provocative voices like this rarely go unscathed, especially when they're on Netflix and YouTube, right? They at times are just as likely to provoke anger in people as they are to provoke critical thought. That's part of the risk of prophetic speech. Most people don't like to have their assumptions about the world challenged. Most of us would just rather keep believing what we currently believe and think that we're completely right in believing it. But the best prophetic voices aren't content to let that happen. And I bring that up because I think it gives us a little bit of a modern framework for one part of how Jesus actually saw himself. Jesus, too, was a fan of prophetic and provocative speech. He wasn't a comedian, although he did sometimes use humor in his teachings, but he did love to challenge people's preconceived notions about the world. He, he found clever ways to get in past people's defenses a little and make them think critically about their deepest held assumptions. And sometimes he actually caused them to reconsider those assumptions as a result. And then other times he just made the people that were listening really, really angry with what he said. But one of the ways that Jesus regularly accomplished this goal was through parables, these short, illustrative stories that he told about the kingdom of God. At one point, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually explains how his parables provoke some people to think and grow and learn while they make other people more and more frustrated and set in their ways. Jesus says that's the nature of how his parables actually function. So while Jesus' methods were very different from that of comedians, his intentions were actually pretty similar, to, to poke and prod at people listening and challenge them to think differently about their world. And I think we can learn a lot from how Jesus does that. So this morning, we are going to look at one such parable from the life and ministry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. If you missed last Sunday, would encourage you to go back and grab the teaching online. But Jesus is now in the middle of an interaction with the religious leaders of his day, who, to say the least, are not Jesus' biggest fans. And in the middle of that interaction with them, where they're already kind of frustrated with him, Jesus tells them this parable that we're going to cover this morning. So pick it up with me. Matthew 21, starting in 33. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. So the arrangement that Jesus describes here in these verses was actually pretty common in his day. So a wealthy landowner would front all the investment and the labor up front to establish a vineyard somewhere in the hillside, but then he rented its daily operation out to some farmers, some tenants. Those tenants would pay for the right to run and operate the vineyard, but since it still belonged to the owner, the owner had the right to come and collect fruit from it on occasion. All a very normal, very expected sort of situation. 
It's also worth knowing, though, that this parable is not entirely original to Jesus. He has actually borrowed many of the details of the story from Isaiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament. If you want to go read that, it's at the very beginning of the chapter. And there, in Isaiah chapter 5, we actually get a sort of glossary of sorts for understanding what various characters and things in the story represent. So in Isaiah chapter 5, we're told that God himself is the landowner, and the nation of Israel as a whole, God's people, are the vineyard. That's what we find out there, which would imply then that the tenants slash farmers in Jesus' version of the story are the religious leaders of Israel, those who are tasked with caring for and tending to the health of the vineyard. In other words, the very people that Jesus is telling this parable to in this moment. Everything makes sense so far? You know who's what in the story? So at this point in the parable, the owner, who represents God, has sent some of his servants to collect the fruit from his vineyard, from the tenants, at which point this happens. Verse 35, the tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. So we don't know why exactly, but these farmers react violently to the servants that the owner sends. They, they beat them up, they murder them, they stone them. So this part of the story, we actually have to kind of piece together from biblical history. But it's pretty clear that the servants in the story sent by the owner represent the prophets. That is, the men and women throughout the Old Testament sent by God to point out Israel's sin and call them to repentance. But almost always, when God sent those prophets throughout the Old Testament, they did not get a warm reception from Israel at all. They were despised, they were mistreated, even sometimes beaten and killed by the people that didn't like what they had to say. People, shockingly, did not want to hear that they were in the wrong and needed to repent. And they treated the prophets accordingly. They chose violence against them instead of listening to them, much like what happens to the servants in Jesus' parable. But what's surprising next in the parable is that the owner actually doesn't give up on the farmers after they respond this way. As bad as it is, he actually makes a second attempt. Verse 36, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. So same strategy by the owner, same response by the tenants. They beat them up, murder them, commit violence against them. So next, the owner is going to try a slightly different strategy. Verse 37, last of all, he, the owner, sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Now, if the landowner is God in the story, who would you guess that the son represents? Jesus. Yeah, didn't have to do a whole lot of translation or interpretation on that one. Jesus is pretty literal with this part of the story. Plus, just if somebody asks a question in church and you say Jesus, in some roundabout way, you're probably right, right? So it's a safe guess. I tried to set you up for success on that one. The son in the story is meant to represent Jesus. So Jesus, at this point in the parable, actually fast-forwards the storyline to present day. Right now, in this very moment in history, God has sent his own son to the nation of Israel. Specifically, he has sent his son to the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, these groups of people. Surely, the owner says in the story, if I send them my son, they will have to respect him. Now, 
to the people listening to the story that day on its own terms, this would have been a very bizarre response from the landowner. What kind of owner would send his own son to a group of farmers who have just beaten and killed servant after servant that he sent? At this point in the story, the landowner doesn't just come off as patient and forgiving and understanding. He honestly comes off as a little bit foolish and naive, right? Surely by now he sees that these farmers, these tenants are corrupt to their core, that he cannot trust them at all, but that evidently does not stop him. He sends his son to them. You see, there's a reason for his persistence, in the story. The, the vineyard is his vineyard. Remember, he planted it. He established it. He made it what it is. And he is not willing to bail on the vineyard just because of a few wicked farmers. Because who is the vineyard in the story again? What does it represent? God's people. Israel, right? God doesn't give up on his people, God doesn't bail on his people, so the owner persists in the story. He tries time and time again, and his efforts are opposed by the tenants time and time again. Jesus is recounting the story of Israel, the scriptures from beginning to end. He's recounting that story in parable form. God sent his prophets repeatedly to call people to repentance, and repeatedly they will not listen to him. So now, in this moment in the story, Jesus says, the whole thing is coming to a dramatic conclusion. God has persisted and shown so much patience that he has now sent his son to these tenants. Jesus has been sent to the farmers to point out their sin and call them to repentance once more. And how do they respond to Jesus doing that? Pretty similarly to the tenants in the story. Verse 38 but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So it's, it's difficult to even understand the rationale at this point in the story by the tenants. They say, let's kill him and take his inheritance. That's weird because it's not like the son was carrying his inheritance with him, right? You, you can't just kill someone and take their inheritance, especially if you're not related to the person giving the inheritance. That's not how it works in any culture. And even if by the inheritance, what they mean is the vineyard itself, they want to retain ownership of the vineyard itself, well, that doesn't make sense either. What kind of landowner, landowner is going to give a vineyard to a group of tenants that just murdered his son? That's not how that works. As if the owner is going to be like, well, since I don't have a son anymore, I guess I'll leave everything to his assassins. Like, that's not how people operate. None of their logic in the story makes any sense at all. But then again, that's kind of the point. Their actions are completely illogical. They are driven by self-interest and self-righteousness and greed and contempt. All of that will make people do a lot of illogical things, as you and I know. But in their blind contempt for the owner of the vineyard, they murder his son at this point in the story. 
just like these religious leaders are already plotting to do to Jesus. Verse 40. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So at this point in the passage, Jesus finishes his parable. He posits a question to his audience, which if we remember our context from earlier is who? Who's the audience? Who's Jesus telling this parable to? The religious leaders of Israel, right? Chief priests, elders, teachers of the law, some combination of those groups. And who are they represented by in the story? The tenants, the farmers, right? Who end up killing the owner's son. But it would appear that when Jesus asked this question, the religious leaders in front of him are not quite tracking with the meaning of the story, quite like we are today. And I say that because of how strongly they answer Jesus' question, what will happen to these tenants? Verse 41 in the passage. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And, they add, he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So by telling the story the way that he does, Jesus actually prompts these religious leaders to pronounce their own sentence of condemnation. The word that they use in their answer, wretched, was an incredibly strong word. It was used to describe people who were so evil and morally depraved as to be entirely worthless altogether. Someone who is better off dead than alive because of how morally bankrupt they have become. That is the word that the religious leaders use to describe the characters in the story that unbeknownst to them, describe themselves. They apparently do not realize any of that yet, but Jesus is about to connect all the dots for them. Next, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, wildly offensive thing for Jesus to say to a group of people who have their identity and how much Bible they know. Have you never read in the scriptures, Jesus says, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? That the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes? Jesus here quotes a psalm from the Old Testament that the religious leaders would have been very, very familiar with. It was a psalm about a guy who was being hunted down by corrupt leaders who wanted to kill him for no apparent reason. Seems somewhat relevant to Jesus' situation at this point in the story, right? It's also a psalm about how God was going to replace those current corrupt leaders with a new appointed leader. Again, pretty relevant to Jesus' situation. Jesus reminds the religious leaders in front of him about that passage from the Psalms, and then he says to them, essentially, that is a passage about you. That passage that you know super well, it's a story about you. You are now the ones on the wrong side of what God is doing in the world. Verse 43, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, religious leaders, and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So Jesus is speaking with plenty of clarity now. Game over, he tells them. You, you have rejected, as the religious leaders, you have rejected every patient attempt that the Father has made to call you to repentance. 
You have rejected every call to repent of your sin and injustice and corruption. You have rejected and silenced all of the people that God the Father sent to you. So now the kingdom that you think you are in charge of is being taken from you and given to people that you think don't have any clue about it. It's all over for the religious leaders at this point. And then Jesus calls them back to the cornerstone metaphor he used a moment ago, verse 44. Anyone who falls on this stone, Jesus says, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus says that anyone who rejects him, God's cornerstone, will be crushed by it. There is only one name, one avenue, one way for people to enter the kingdom of God, and that's through the cornerstone, Jesus. And if you have decided to reject him, there is nothing else that can be done. You have pronounced your own judgment. You've signed your own death warrant. It's over. God the Father is the most patient, enduring, long-suffering landowner that you will ever meet in your life, sometimes to the point of absurdity. He will try time and time again to get you to see what you need to see, to own what you need to own, but there will come a day when he says, that's it. I'm done. Let's close out the story, verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So now they're tracking. No surprises here in their response. They do precisely what Jesus' parable just predicted that they would do. Try to eliminate Jesus from the picture. Verse 46. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So Jesus has now described what these religious leaders have done. He has predicted what they're going to do and soon will be proven correct in his prediction. Not only have they rejected the cornerstone in the story, they are now looking for a way to eliminate him from the picture entirely. But they hesitate to do it because they're nervous about how the crowds will respond if they do. So there's our passage. The question then becomes, what can you and I glean from a parable like this? And honestly, probably a lot of things. Probably a lot of different things we could take away from it. But I've got one big idea I want to set before you this morning. I think this is a passage, among other things, about the power of provocative, prophetic speech. This is a story about the power of provocative, prophetic speech. So we talked as we began this morning about comedy as provocative speech, how that kind of speech, as the word suggests, provokes people. It, it pokes and prods at people's assumptions about the world and about themselves. It challenges the listener to think differently about things as a result of hearing it. Now, people may respond positively to that type of speech by reconsidering their assumptions in the way that you want them to, or negatively by dismissing or attacking the person speaking. But regardless of what the response is, the nature of provocative prophetic speech is that it does prompt the listener to respond somehow. 
it is very difficult to respond neutrally to truly prophetic speech. And that's why provocative speech is so powerful. And that is how Jesus speaks in this passage that we read today, and honestly, how he speaks an awful lot of the time during his ministry. He provokes people. He pokes. He prods. He ruffles feathers. That is what Jesus does constantly in the way that he talks to people. And some people respond by leaving everything to follow him, while other people respond by wanting to arrest and kill him. But not many people respond neutrally to all of it. His words don't really allow much room for that type of response. So here's where I think this gets really practical for us. I think that as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we need to recapture the use of provocative, prophetic speech. We need to recover a willingness to provoke people to action in healthy sorts of ways. Now, for most of us, that's not going to happen on a stage or on a Netflix special, right? For most of us, that is going to happen in everyday relationships with other followers of Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. Remember who Jesus was speaking to in Matthew 21, those who claimed to know God, right? He was speaking to those who claimed a knowledge and an understanding of the scriptures, people who called themselves God's people. Those were the people that Jesus felt most needed to be provoked in their understandings and assumptions about the world. And those were the people that Jesus chose to provoke time and time again throughout his ministry. And I would submit to you that as the community of Jesus, there are times and seasons where we too should be doing that with one another. Hebrews 10 verse 24 puts it like this. We'll put this up on the screen for you. Speaking to followers of Jesus, it says this, and let us consider how we may, what's that next word? Spur. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Spur one another on, as in the thing that you do to a horse where you low-key stab them in the side to get them to move. Just want to make sure we're tracking on the meaning of that word. Did you guys know that the Bible tells us to do that figuratively? I should clarify that. Figuratively <laughs> tells us to do that with other followers of Jesus? The, the scriptures tell us that there are times where what is needed is for us to spur one another on to action, specifically in the passage towards love and good deeds. There are times where we as followers of Jesus will need to provoke other followers of Jesus such that the other person has to respond one way or another to the things that we say. Now, be very clear, there is obviously a very sinful way to do this, where we are agitating other people just for the sake of agitating them, right? And there's a way to do it too often in such a way that we are constantly over-aggressive in our conversations and interactions with one another in a self-righteous sort of way. But what Hebrews is talking about, I would argue, is a holy expression of it. 
That, that we would constantly consider how we might need to spur one another on, provoke one another to become more of who God made us to be. And if the language of Jesus and of Hebrews is any indication at all, that will be at least somewhat unpleasant when it happens. Just ask any horse that has been spurred on, right? Being provoked to action is sometimes deeply uncomfortable when it happens, but it's also evidently sometimes deeply needed. So listen, one of the things that I love about our church so much is that nearly every new person that comes around our church family talks about how warmly they are welcomed in how encouraging people are when they come around, how supportive people in our church are towards them. And let me be very clear, I don't want any of those things to change about our church ever. I don't want any of those things to ever change. But at the same time, here is what I know about following Jesus. Just like there are times where we need to be welcomed and encouraged and supported, there are also times where we need to be spurred on, provoked, challenged, confronted, spoken directly and incisively to. Encouragement is absolutely vital, to be sure. And evidently, according to Hebrews, so is spurring each other on. So this morning, and I say this hesitantly, I want to give us permission from the scriptures to at least occasionally do that in our interactions with fellow followers of Jesus. So let's say, for example, there's a good friend of yours who follows Jesus, but who is just really, really harsh towards their spouse or towards their kids on a regular basis. Let's say that's the situation. Or let's say there's someone in your life group who claims to follow Jesus, but who has really unhealthy, really ambiguous relationships with members of the opposite sex. Let's say that's the situation at hand. Or let's say there's another follower of Jesus in your life who is making a mess of their life due to decisions driven by greed and materialism on a regular basis, but they don't see it as an issue at all. Or to be honest, any other number of situations like those out there. But let's say there's some sort of situation where another follower of Jesus that you know at least fairly well is currently letting unhealthy behaviors go unaddressed and unnoticed in their life. Those are the situations that I would argue Hebrews is talking precisely about, where we may need to spur one another into action and into repentance. So, with those types of situations in our minds, whatever they are, you know what they are in your life, with those types of situations in mind, I want to give you some guardrails for how you might go about these conversations. Some help for how you might speak into those situations provocatively and prophetically in a way that is helpful to the other person, in a way that embodies the posture of the kingdom and not the posture of self-righteousness. If you are brand new to this idea, and I get that it can feel overwhelming, if you're brand new to the idea of speaking this way to other followers of Jesus, I pray that this gives you some practical guidance on how to do it. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, hopefully a lot of these are just good reminders to you. But I want to give you what I consider to be four 
components of provocative speech for followers of Jesus to abide by. Uh, I made all of them start with P because that felt like a thing that a preacher would do. So you're welcome for that. Uh, You ready? Four components of provocative prophetic speech. These will be fairly rapid fire, so dial in with me for a few minutes. First component of this type of speech is preparation. Preparation, provocative speech and spurring one another on should be something you prepare in advance to do, not spur of the moment. Specifically, I think it should be something you prepare to do by praying about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that a follower of Jesus should talk to God about a brother more than they talk to a brother about God. I think that's a fantastic operating principle for these conversations. Chances are, if you have not prayed about the thing that you are engaging or confronting another follower of Jesus on, you are not adequately prepared to talk about it with them. I think preparation should also most likely involve seeking wise counsel from another person who loves Jesus to make sure that you're thinking about the situation correctly, making sure that you're approaching it with a humble posture. So in at least those two ways, probably more, but in at least those two ways, you want to prepare well for those interactions. Second component of provocative prophetic speech is precision. Precision. So the goal in these types of conversations is not to confront every area of the other person's life that you currently see as the problem all at once. Just, here's a bunch of things you're bad at, just thought you should know. Have a good day. That's not what we're going for here. Again, the word for that is self-righteousness, right? And even if it's not self-righteousness, it's certainly not helpful to go about it that way. So when you are engaging someone else on something that they need to see about themselves, precision is key. Tell them the precise thing that you're concerned about. Tell them a few of the precise ways that you've seen it show up in their life and tell them the precise reason that you are concerned about it. Make what you're referring to crystal clear as much as you are able. Uh, To put it another way, I read this in one of the premarital books that we use here at City Church. Uh, In these types of confronting conversations, you want to use a scalpel, not a hatchet. Does everybody know the difference in how you use a scalpel and a hatchet? The way that a medical professional uses a scalpel is a very different way than how you chop wood, right? Very, very different things, okay? So as best you can, use precision. Operate with precision in these conversations with other followers of Jesus. Third component is patience. Patience. So I want you to think back with me briefly to the parable that Jesus told. Uh, The landowner in the story, as we observed, was unbelievably patient, right? Almost incomprehensibly patient, like more patient than he should have been, arguably. He sent one representative after another after another. He didn't just send one representative and then say, well, I guess the tenants are just unrepentant. Heck with them. Good luck to them. Nope, he, he persisted. Time and time again, over and over again, he called them to repentance. So can I just ask you, are you patient with these types of conversations? 
when someone does not respond well to the thing that you bring up with them, do you go, okay, seems like they're not ready to hear that quite yet. I'll try again sometime soon. I'll pray more on it. I'll prepare even more for it. I'll be patient, and I'll bring it up again sometime in the future. Is that how you respond? Or do you go, well, I kind of sort of brought it up once, like in passing, and they were too arrogant to hear it, so I'm not going to talk about it ever again with them. I would encourage you instead to be patient with these conversations. Patient with your initial confrontation, patient with the other person's response to it, and patient with their process of repentance. Patience is absolutely key when engaging other followers of Jesus on difficult things because we serve a patient God who is patient with us. And I say that as somebody who is notoriously horrible at patience. So there you go. We'll learn together. Patience is the third component. And then finally, last component, I would say, to prophetic, provocative speech towards other followers of Jesus is purpose. Purpose. If you actually want to be helpful towards others in these types of conversations, you absolutely must remember the purpose of the conversation. The purpose isn't to prove them wrong. The purpose isn't to prove yourself right. The purpose isn't to just make them stop doing something that you happen to find annoying. The purpose isn't to demonstrate that you are a more mature follower of Jesus than they are because you spotted something in their life that they don't see. The purpose is none of that. The purpose is to help the other person become more like Jesus. That's the purpose of these conversations, and you absolutely must remember that. So think back to the image of spurring one another on that Hebrews used. You're not spurring someone just for the purpose of spurring them. You are spurring them so that they move in a particular direction. The purpose is that all of us, day by day, would move in the direction of holiness, of becoming who God made us to be. The purpose is that we would be watching out for each other and helping one another not be blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. And through that healthy confrontation, that each of us would become more and more like Jesus as a result. That we would love the things that Jesus loves. That we would pursue the things that Jesus pursues. And that we would embody the things that Jesus embodies. That's our purpose with these conversations always. That's the commander's intent. That's what we're aiming for in each and every conversation. James chapter 5 puts it like this, and I love the way this articulates the situation. It says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, meaning by talking to them about it and walking with them through the process of repentance, If someone does that, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I love that passage because it helps us see the importance of these types of conversations. When we engage in uncomfortable conversations with other followers of Jesus, we are, quote, bringing a wanderer back and saving their soul from death. 
I also find that language helpful because it gives us lenses for what is happening when we choose not to have these conversations. When we see someone we know and love barreling towards death and we choose not to say anything about it, that is in essence to not care about that person in that moment. It's to love our own comfort and ease of life and convenience more than we love them. And that very posture fights against the heart of the gospel message. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but the gospel comes to all of us in the form of loving confrontation. That's what the gospel message is. The gospel tells us that the way we are currently living is not working, that we cannot be good enough to earn acceptance from God, and that the only way we can obtain it is to be freely given it by grace. That is a message of confrontation if I've ever heard one. But it is loving confrontation in that it provides a clear solution to the problem in and through Jesus. Jesus saw our wondering and he brought us back. He saved us from death and covered a multitude of sins. And so the best type of confrontation looks and feels like that. It's, it's not just, hey, you're doing this wrong and you really should do it right. It's actually, here's why sin is bad, here's why Jesus is the solution, and here's how I'd like to walk alongside you as you figure all of that out. When we engage in loving confrontation with other followers of Jesus, we are choosing to embody one essential component of the gospel. We are joining Jesus in his efforts to make all things new. So let me pray for us and I've got some immediate application for us.